0: Welcome to the Tech Talk Show, an hour of news, views and discussion. We've got a packed studio, Dan, haven't we? I've never seen it so busy. No, no, (laughs) it's quite good, and it's really good because the air conditioning's broken, so it's (laughs) going to be like a sauna in about ten minutes.
1: Yeah, something to look forward to. Yeah, really looking forward to that.
0: I'm, I'm putting a good. I'm making our guests feel at home. Yeah, absolutely. It's good for you to tell them now as well. Yes, just to (laughs) warn them just how unbearable it's going to get. Anyway, (laughs) let me run through who we got here. So we've got Alex and James, and they're from the healthcare startup Labs. Is that right, guys? That's great. Yeah, it welcome is. to the show. We've Thank got you. Julie Evans, and Julie's from Exonar. Exona, Exona yeah. Exona, sorry. And uh, I've got Andy Lilly, and Andy's from Armour Communications.
2: Uh, yep, Armour Communications. That's yeah.
0: right. So welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, great to have you here. Um, let's start. Dan, yeah, let's do you want to kick it off?
1: Yeah, so um, let's. We, we've got um, Alex and James all queued up. So could you tell us a bit about healthcare um, startup labs and what
3: you guys do? Yeah, sure. So um, myself and James are both doctors by training. Um, okay. I was a bit of a nerd when I was at medical school and sold a company um, and then went on to found another company when I was Actually, a doctor as well. So coming back quite late at night from sort of shifts and things, and then doing a bit of coding, taught myself some really terrible, terrible web design skills, <laughs> uh, but not terrible enough to put people off buying things through some of the sites. See, so, right? Um, that's my background. Um, and then James and I met at uh, an, a Microsoft Accelerator event. Uh, yeah. James is the um, head of the Digital Health London Accelerator, um, and what we're sort of quite passionate about, with my background and his, is helping startups in healthcare trying to get funded, trying to learn the skills they need to break through um, some of the current barriers. So we set up something called HS, um, which is a healthcare accelerator and incubator fund, which helps those early stage startups to tackle some
0: global health issues. So what are the uh, first, what are the main mistakes that the new companies are making that you're helping them overcome? Or what are the main barriers that they face? Yeah, so
3: uh, it's a great question. I mean, I think um, there's multiple, multiple layers really. So, um, as a, a solo entrepreneur, if you sort of spot a problem in healthcare. Um, you've got to make sure that you have all the skills required. So, um, you know, I'm sure your listeners will appreciate that to have a startup, you've got to have a really, really strong sort of tech side. You've got to have operations people, um, but actually finding those people is really, really tough. So, um, you can go to meetups around London. You can use websites like CoFounder, um, but actually finding people who are who are really, really high quality is is really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that we do is we pair actual practicing doctors. So people who understand the healthcare issues and and understand how to sell into the NHS um, with people with really strong tech backgrounds. And that might be PhD students in machine learning, um, people who've got sort of AR, VR backgrounds, or people who've just got sort of strong coding skills and have been to business schools doing MBAs. Um, So that's sort of the the first part of it. And then once we have teams, or if teams apply externally, um, as small sort of early stage businesses or startups, we help them make sure that they've got a valid idea. Um, so one of the big you know, founder biases of any startup is we think our idea is fantastic, yeah, but, sure. but is anyone actually A going to yeah. buy it and is, is it going to be useful to the users themselves?
0: And also a common mistake is that ideas like huge and they're going to cure a range of things. And actually right. well, this is should, the problem? Maybe they should be focusing on one or two particular issues. Well, exactly,
4: yeah. I think, especially through my job at The Accelerator, we... Um, we end up giving advice to lots of different people that apply and we give um, lots of time in sort of office hours to people that are looking for advice. And the, the one question I always ask people is, what problem do you solve? Yeah. And you'd be so surprised about how many people just cannot answer that simple question. They tell you everything about the business and how they found it and how amazing it is. And they tell you everything about everything about everything. Yeah. And you just kind of say to them, okay, but what problem do you solve? And they, they try and they try and reduce that down. And it's very difficult. And I think unless, especially in healthcare, unless you can really hone down on the problem it is you solve, you're going to really struggle because in a healthcare system, that is a public healthcare system that doesn't have the money to spend on things that are nice to have, which we just can't, we can't spend many things are yeah. nice to have, it needs to be in the necessary column rather than sure. the nice to have column, right? Mm.
0: Yeah, so,
1: and how, how do you go about pairing people up in terms of complementary sort of skills?
3: Yes, I mean, the idea behind that, essentially, is it's taking the the concept of a a meet-up or the concept of how finders meet each other um, naturally and sort of serendipitously and putting it into an actual formalized program with some strategy behind it so essentially what we do is we uh, we've already got sort of a, a really strong selection of entrepreneurial doctors um, and then it's a, a case of putting them through a strong r- robust interview process trying to find those entrepreneurial character traits um, such as resilience leadership if they've already sort of been in a startup before you know that's a huge indicator that they're likely to be successful in the future um, and then pairing them with those people through a synergistic application process assessing people's technical backgrounds seeing what what their um, PhD has been on, whether it's something that can be commercialised in the NHS, Um, and then essentially putting them together through a a series of team-building exercises and seeing what they produce. Um, Because, I mean, I've, I've... started sort of a number of companies and it's really really obvious quite quickly whether you and your co-founder work together well are you productive are you actually creating something that you both enjoy do you get on are you communicating or is one person just sure. just not doing anything so i think it's it's a case of of really just taking some of our combined experiences and applying it to those early stage startups um and that that's what's certainly one portion of it um i think the real important bit which is what we're mainly trying to do with the incubation fund is that the startups who are much further on down the line, who might be selling into the NHS on a small scale, or startups who are from abroad who want to sell into the NHS, that's when we can really try and um, improve their scaling ability and their growth. Um, So that would be using some of our operations teams and experience um, and and ensuring that they can scale through current NHS channels, but also reach healthcare um, institutions
0: abroad as well. Now, um, it's notorious that to sell into the health market it can be really, really difficult to get the necessary certification or the approval. Is that true? Is that... that, Very true. Is it? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah.
4: very true. And unless you're set up from day one to really do that, and unless you kind of... Unless unless you really believe that that is what you want to do, that is the market you want to break, you're probably not going to do it because it's going to be hard. And I think this is one of the reasons that healthcare often gets left behind because people find it easier in other industries to apply certain technology like near-field communication or things like that that are just so easily applicable to other things. But in order to do that in healthcare, you need to really corner a part of the healthcare market you sure. need to understand exactly how it's going to be useful you need to build a business case around it and you need to work extremely hard to get into healthcare to even get the pilot because there's a huge huge chicken and egg between getting trials and evidence because in order to get evidence which is the first thing that you're going to be asked for you need a trial and yeah. in order to clinical trials
0: through. can be very costly can't they yeah, yeah indeed a, yeah
4: yeah, it's going to be. But that said, I mean, there are ways to do it. And one of the main things is is building relationships within the NHS, because ultimately, there are there are layers of accountability and decision making, but it always comes down to people. And I think those companies and small startups that are at loads of events and talking to lots of people and building trust with those decision makers, they end up having the ability to kind of de-risk it for themselves by just building that relationship. So it's it's really important to get out there and and, um, yeah, really start networking. And, and so some,
0: that. Of, some of the things you've seen coming through, obviously, because you're a startup and, and, or a near startup sort of support. I mean, you've got two. For me, I, I see there's two sort of sectors. One is the preventative bit. Either encouraging people to be more active or, or taking a lifestyle changes and that. Or you've got the sort of the curing, interventive sort of side as well. Where, where are you mainly seeing technic, tech companies focusing or is it spread between the two? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think certainly at the
3: moment it's, it's spread between the two in some respects. So,
0: I mean, I think it's, you know, it's akin just to
3: business to business and business to customer models, really. So, right. um, you've got, there's a big push from NHS Digital at the moment to um, do personalised and um, home assessment medicine and things like that. So, cutting out the need to come into outpatient clinics, yep. saving the NHS, um, you know, mi- millions and millions of pounds a year. Sure. Um, and that's something that has been taken up by quite a number of apps. So, that's things like, you know, taking your, your own blood sugar at yeah, home for diabetes. Monitoring, yeah. Home right. Remote. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and then you know you can get more advanced with those. So um, if you bring in data analysts and data scientists, you can really do something to predict which patients are at risk, and that's what things like Google DeepMind are doing um, for in hospital things with um, their uh, Streams platform. Um, and with the preventive side as well, you want to be picking up those patients and seeing what can be optimised in the community by their GP. Mm-hmm. Because the big spend in the NHS is the patients who come into hospital um, unnecessarily, essentially. So that that's certainly one side. And then you're absolutely right. The other side is, is probably you know, the deeper tech for what can be done for patients who are in hospital and things like that. Um, and that might be from everything such as machine learning for um, picking up uh, problems with vision by ophthalmologists um, to things like VR um, for training for doctors and things like that Um, and I'd say there's also sort of another layer as well on that which is the optimization of the actual flow in hospitals so things like staffing solutions things like patient um, care solutions um, and just things like sort of um, optimizing the, the work
0: of nurses and doctors. Sure. So it's a huge area. Yeah. yeah.
1: And with the, with the best sort of with the best advice in the world, not all startups are successful, right? So you've got these people you've selected and seen that they've got these great skills. What happens if if they've you know the, the the sort of startup they've started
3: doesn't because if it succeed. Absolutely. I mean, the I'm, I'm sure you're aware that, you know, the data from the original Y Combinator data says that 50% of startups failed in the first year, right? So I think we know that. Everyone knows that. I think what we try and do is we try and mitigate that as much as we possibly can. There are always going to be things that don't get taken on board. Because we're looking at the full lifespan of uh, essentially a startup going all the way to a small to medium enterprise, take for an exit or IPO we can see which ones become commercially viable quite quickly. So although we've got the building stage, um, of which I suspect, you know, you're probably looking at 50% still not not sort of faring well after the first year. But once you start seeing some commercial viability be able to sell into the NHS or users um, actually using their, their software, then we can help them scale and, and prevent them from being in that sort of barren wasteland of, of needing sort of Series A, Series B rounds, right? Hmm.
0: So um, NHS budget, I think 100 billion a year, roughly? 107. How, how many? 107. 107. So um, how much of that goes on tech? Wow. <laughs> it's even, like being a viva. <laughs> even if it's only 10%, and I assume it's going to be 10, 5, 10 or 5%, because most, most of it's going to go on salary. Um, but that is a huge spend market, isn't it?
4: It is, it's just gonna be really difficult to know. I mean, from the NHS side, how how do they invest in that? I mean, how, from from their point of view, um, and we're talking, whether you're talking NHS England, whether whether you're talking NHS digital, how can they assess how they're going to get that money back because it's often not in these quick cycles of oh we'll just throw some money in and and then we'll get that money back that the nhs doesn't have this money to to show up front to see this return and that's why you know particularly on the accelerator and and, and nhs we we're really focusing on business models because we need to see payment by results we need this this can't be a huge upfront cost you can't go in there with you know asking for a huge amount of capital to to implement something because it's, it's money that the public sector simply doesn't have but that doesn't preclude you from going behind the scenes and actually having a really good think about it coming up with a really innovative business model and then just saying well actually implement this for free now and in a year's time we'll just take a cut of what you've saved and and I think, that's
0: i think the hard thing is is that can be seen if you're optimizing staff or throughput in a hospital that's great. You can it, that that's quite immediate, and you can see a benefit in terms of increased patient flow or or, or improved staff efficiency. Mm. But if you're talking about a preventative campaign, let's say it's something to do with cessation of smoking or or alcohol consumption reduction, then that's going to take fifteen twenty years to. to to see if there's a real benefit, and yeah, sure. that must be extremely hard. Yeah, I
3: mean, I think one of the good things that um, the NHS has done, so the NHS Innovation Department um, has really been been on, on the ball with this, really. So they've actually produced a list of tariffs um, for certain things, so things like preventative measures. So okay. there's one tariff that specifically aims at so COPD patients and, and out-of-hospital monitoring for them, so they will actively pay someone who comes up with a solution for that from a budget. So that's how they're looking at essentially bringing in tech, without saying we've got, you know, X amount of money to spend on tech, just in general. They're focusing on target problems. Yeah, Ooh, fascinating.
1: Um, in terms of the selection process, what, what do people have to go through?
3: So, they have to get past us, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so, um, we've, it, we've got to quite robust in, uh, selection and interview So There's an online application um, and, followed and,
0: by... And do doctors make good entrepreneurs? Well, I hope, so. <laughs> <laughs> I
3: hope so. I hope so. Um, I've been quite lucky in that um, I think I've had quite a lot of good mentors um, and all the stuff that I have done. Has been sort of me doing it in my spare time. So um, I was doing it around my, my clinical training. And that's that been has...
0: extremely hard.
3: Yeah, so I was yeah. getting slightly insane at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, it's, it's got me to this point and, and those companies have done really, really well. And now I can be in a position where I can um, you know, do this. It's, it's worth
4: saying as well, doctors already are being entrepreneurial, but they're, they're being intrapreneurial because one of the things that we're, we have to do. Um, as medics in our training is we have to do audits and quality improvement projects. So we're already finding out things that are going wrong or, or could be done better and we are finding ways to go to around that. And that's the kind of route that I came through in terms of doing lots and lots of quality improvement projects, writing business cases, okay. you know, shadowing finance departments. And that's the kind of entrepreneurship, intrapreneurship that, that we're certainly looking for in order to pair them mm-hmm. with people that can really build a
3: business. So.
0: Well, sounds fascinating. Where do we get further information?
3: Um, So our website is Um, hs.live. If you have any listeners who are interested in healthcare and healthcare startups, head on there, drop us an email, we'd love to hear from you guys. Um, And there's loads going on in the healthcare space at the moment. So, you know, the NHS, healthcare in general, needs entrepreneurs that need innovation um, to solve some of this massive deficit. Um, Heading towards globally a 20% GDP spent on healthcare, which isn't really sustainable. So, you know, we're looking to to people to,
0: to really come in and make a difference. Yeah, I mean, that is a huge problem, isn't it, for uh, every country around the world, including us in the UK, that the spend is not sustainable, really, um, and we need to look at different ways of doing things. So, yeah. yeah. Great. great. Thank you ever so much for joining us, and um, you're going to hang around anyway, which Absolutely. we are. Yeah. So, uh, we are now going to go to a bit of unboxing. Well, as I said, it's that time, so we're now going to unboxing. Dan's got the purple box. I have. So just to explain how it works, we don't know what's in the box. We're going to have a look at it, play with it, and see what um, see what we think of it. And that everybody gets a chance to comment, and uh, yeah, be honest and be truthful. So that's the thing. So uh, Dan's opened the box, and All it right. is... Okay. So we've got a oh, it looks a bit of wearable tech, damn. What is it?
1: Tech sixty-four. It's a gator. Okay, it's a gator so watch.
0: Uh, funny enough, I saw these somewhere at a show somewhere. So okay. you carry on. And you describe what we have yes
1: Yeah, got. so I'd um, say it's quite a white sort of. Apple-like yeah, we'll pass it around. Box,
0: Yeah. So what do you think of the packaging?
5: Yeah, it's, it's very Apple-like actually. Isn't it does, it? White, doesn't it? White yeah, box. Really, yeah, really, really similar is, yeah. quality of um, of packaging as well. Yeah. I would say. So, Let me, yeah, uh, pass it on for you guys to have a look.
0: So um so
3: it's so apple like there's actually a banana on the outside yeah. which, is, which is great. <laughs> yeah there good, we go good good marketing. Marketing. Yeah, yeah a
0: complete yeah. So we're into the packaging um yeah. it is incredibly apple like in terms of it. it's very well looks very very well presented actually. So hmm. we have a watch type uh device. Do you have a look at that Alex? So nice. yeah. James has gone through the box nicely yeah. packaged though. Yeah pretty good. Uh yeah, so we got a uh, some sort of lead so yeah, yep, small charger.
3: Small charger, standard standard power stuff. Really. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and we've got the game for call, locate, emergency and waterproof on their packaging as their selling points. Okay, mm-hmm. so, so the four
0: key points.
3: Okay.
1: And Alex has got you've got the oh sorry, James you've got the watch there. So it looks like a blue sort
0: of Andy, what do you think of that packaging? Have a have a look at the box.
1: Yeah. Blue,
4: rubbery. Uh okay. Watch, quite a small screen.
0: Is it
6: on?
4: It's not on. Let's see without any instructions if I can figure out how to turn it on. Yeah, go on then. It's it's very (laughs) unlikely. (laughs) Pass it this
0: way then, Julie.
5: Might not be charged, I guess, but uh, yeah, I don't.
0: I've to put my glasses on to have a look. (laughs) Can't see. He's got the instructions. It's a bit
5: dark in here, actually. Maybe maybe the lighting's not working. Better teamwork here,
1: I think. Where are the instructions? Uh, There's there's a card. okay uh, they've assumed uh, the level uh, of intelligence here that clearly <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah please, it's a good job we haven't got any doctors <laughs> <in there. laughs> yeah. please go to the um how it works website oh okay oh. so <laughs> that's handy
0: uh very light incredibly light it charges it doesn't look like it's a normal charger actually. i think so, it's, yeah, it a, looks like it's a gone. magnetic charger yeah it? Oh, yes. have
2: a look. oh if you read this it says you actually have to buy a service plan Oh, do we? Uh no, look. Hey. Oh, look. Oh, there we go. We just, just press all down. the buttons anyway. at once.
1: <laughs> is that what you did? Yeah. Okay. Oh, cracking It's making...
0: So, what, what actually is it? So, we've got a uh, wearable device. Yep. Uh, produced by Tech64, who we know, and it's got cool, locate, emergency, waterproof. Okay. And so, it's a device to be worn by young people, I think.
1: Yeah. I think so. It's, got, it's quite, it's got a nice um, colour screen on it, which um, okay. if you just flick through the buttons,
0: I think. Yeah. And uh, from my understanding, you can programme it with up to 13 telephone numbers.
5: Okay, yeah. But only
0: 13, uh, up to 13. So there's no internet access, um, but you can use it as a emergency call or a locator. Uh, and it's for children, sort of five to ten, that yeah, sort of age. So. So, and uh, it tells the time. Yeah.
5: It does tell the time, <laughs> yeah. It's actually <laughs> quite chunky for a small it, it five is. to ten-year-old's yeah. wrist, I think.
2: Yeah, it's quite large, isn't it? Probably quite robust, though, by the feel of it. Yeah. yeah. Which it needs to be with a small kid. Yeah. yeah. And it says it's waterproof as well, which I thought was... It needs to be.
0: <laughs> is it sandproof? Yeah. Snot proof and everything proof. It
2: looks like it. It's not my not my colour though. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> so what do you think? Um, if you had a child and you wanted to make sure they were, would you have one?
2: I guess it's interesting to understand when they talk about location. What do they mean? Can you log into a website and see where it's an your app. child is? Or it's an app. Okay.
0: It's an yeah.
2: App. I think it uses
1: uh, GPS. Yeah. And Wi-Fi hotspots as well to locate. I think.
5: If it improves, perhaps not safety, but just um, maybe just even the perception of safety to understand where your children of that age are, then I think it's a benefit to a parent. I I mean, I guess at the age of five, you're probably not going to be you're going you're going to know where your five year old is. But um, but as they get hopefully, (laughs) hopefully, yeah, (laughs) mine's at school right now, (laughs) I hope. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, I think. As as kids get older, if you're not comfortable with them having a mobile, at least you have a, a mechanism to be able to get hold of them, um, and also an idea of, of where they are, if they're telling you the truth. Well, an idea of where their watch is, anyway.
0: They do. Because they
5: don't necessarily wear it, just yeah, because you've yeah. asked that's them it, that's to. That's what
3: I was going to say, right. if to be a they, they want to be if, if they actually want to put it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing, yeah. I guess
2: if you can call the watch and it can call out, though, you've got a good way of checking, is it actually on yeah. your
0: child's wrist? Yeah. Mm, so, I think it's. A, I suppose it's a bit of reassurance for the parent, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um. Yeah. Having had. I have. I have a daughter who tends to, used to wander somewhat. Sometimes, it would have been actually quite useful to know where <laughs> she'd wandered to. <laughs> so, uh, yeah.
1: She kept, kept kept coming back, though, didn't she?
0: <laughs> yes, and she still is coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, That is true. Um. Yeah. So, what do we think? Uh. Are we going to look at cost? Shall yeah. Should yeah? we? Yeah. So, what would you pay for something like that? You haven't just broken it, have you? No, not yet. Are you sure?
1: Yeah. <laughs> How much will I pay for it? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, if it's if it's got GPS and it's waterproof and it's you know all and that it. sort of thing, then I don't know. What do you think?
2: Um, I
1: don't know, eighty, ninety pounds,
2: yeah, maybe. I think so. Andy. Yeah, if if that kind of includes the first year's service or something, then that sounds reasonable
3: guys i'm gonna go what do you i'm gonna say a little bit higher maybe. Oh, i was gonna go lower mate I mean, okay. really? <laughs> <laughs> <Your> teamwork <laughs> that's why we compliment each other yeah yeah, yeah yeah that's yeah. exactly right <laughs> alex so neither of us have any children say so <laughs> <laughs> literally the worst person to be uh, uh actually using this device. but i reckon i'm going just, 59 59 okay i'll get that 59
5: yeah, I mean, look, I think that's a, a reasonable. The, the annual fee, I think, would be would the be other more, thing that I would want yeah, to yeah, be no. aware of. Um, but at that point before you were comfortable with them having a phone, um, yeah, I guess kind of 80 quid, something like that. Yeah, um, and and actually, if it if it could be more attractive to the child rather than the parent, because I can see why this is very attractive to a parent, but if it could potentially have you know a game on it or even step counting or something that a, sure. a child might enjoy, then mm. uh, it might push its value up yeah. a bit. It might have those functionalities. We haven't had a chance. to We don't to look, know, do
0: we? I don't think it has, but no, no yeah.
6: idea. Anyway, um, okay. Danny, yeah. So this was sent in to us by Tech Sixty Four. Um, some of the functionalities on it. So it is geared towards for the parent, obviously, to know where the children are at um, all times. Um, the one thing it can do is they can set up a safe boundary. So you go onto the, the, the app, the Gator app, and then you can set up that if anyone leave, if the child leaves that, that area, you get notified straight away. It also has an SOS button on it as well, which therefore means that the one of the 13 numbers that you've put in, so mom, dad, brother, whatever it may be, auntie, if you press the s o s button it will dial um each number until there's an until there's an answer, so automatically someone has to answer so they can then talk to the child um, It is geared like you said it is geared more towards the the parent at the more I think it's something they're looking at to see if they can improve. Why the child might want to wear it. Um, I believe they're looking at maybe discounts uh, for uh, Legoland things, things like that. Is sort of the remit they're looking for. Um, but but that's sort of what it has. In, they have in mind for it. But there's an app, an app that on your phone that goes with it, so it, it can sort of entail more to it. So yeah, um, yeah. The price that it's retailing at the moment is ninety nine pounds. It's available from Amazon or John Lewis. So. Um, and all other good uh, outlets, I'd imagine. But uh, they're the two that that's at the moment. So yeah, ninety-nine pounds. But like you said, it, it, it feels like it, it's durable, and I, I think it needs to be. So yeah, fine.
0: So the only thing that's left to happen <laughs> is the normal dance. <laughs> yeah.
6: Is it? Does it
1: rock,
2: or does it go back in the box? So,
0: so. anti.
2: Um, I think, given how nervous parents are about their children nowadays, not. Necessarily for good reason, but how nervous they are—that'll probably sell pretty well.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah. I think Alex, m- my reservation just be: Would children want to actually wear it yeah, and use it? Too. But um, mm. yeah, I'm sure the parents would probably buy it. Mm. Yeah. I agree with that,
0: Julie.
5: Yeah, I think um, I'd probably want to understand a bit more about target market. Um, as I mentioned, I have got a five-year-old, and I don't think she'd keep that on her wrist. It's it's very big. So um, so yeah, we're a slightly older child potentially, yeah. a pre-mobile phone age. I yeah,
0: just... I agree I Agree with you. Pre-mobile phone, mm. yeah. Uh, who would want a 10-year-old with a smartphone that had unlimited internet exactly. access? Yeah, mm. whereas at least that you still got communication with them, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Agreed. that's right. A... So, yeah. uh, I'm going to say, yeah, it rocks too. Yeah, good, yeah. So, I'd, I'd have to brilliant. agree, yep. yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's... Well, thank you, guys. That's brilliant. Thanks ever so much. So, now, moving on, Dan. Yep. We're now going to speak to Julie. Julie Evans from ExxonR. So Julie tell us a little bit about what ExxonR is and how you came about uh, developing it.
5: Okay so um I actually I've been at ExxonR for just over a year. I spent the last um 10 years or so in security risk and compliance and privacy um which is a really interesting area I is it really yep, that is, <laughs> is riveting. It? Oh yeah okay. <laughs> um and I I spent quite a lot of time um talking to chief information officers uh, and chief information security officers about what is the thing that they worry about, what keeps them awake at night. Um, And something that came back more often than than any other reply was, I don't know what I've got, essentially. So there's a lot of information in the data stores within my organisation. And I don't know what information is contained. Um, I don't know what I can delete. I don't know, uh, you know, where the data has been extracted from and how long we're storing it for. All of those kind of problems were were very much repeated. What Exonar does is it it answers that question for the organisation. So We will um, crawl all of the unstructured data stores, um, index the content and the metadata, which essentially makes all of the data stores searchable and reportable. So from a CIO perspective, if you want to delete data, if you want to know whether your information is within your retention policies, those kind of things, all all of that suddenly becomes possible because we know what's there and what the metadata is that's, that's linked to it. So... Why is that relevant now? Well, there are a number of different use cases for our product and people are using it for for a range of things um but right now and I think you talked about it last week um GDPR is the new yes, EU right, yeah. data protection regulation um the, essentially step two if you look at the ICO guidance it's step two the same with the Irish Information Commissioner step two um is know what information you have so the the regulation requires you to map all of the personal information that you're holding within your organisation and know everywhere that you're holding personal data or special categories of personal data about um employees or customers it doesn't matter who it is the regulations not um, not fussy and that is a huge challenge for many organizations and um, the the regulation overall i think most of us as consumers and as data subjects as we're referred to under the act um would, would be delighted um, because it, in it, what it does at its highest level is it tries to give the ownership of data back to the consumer or the, the, the data subject rather than organisations owning data. So the, the ownership and control of, of your information should sit with you and you get to choose who holds it, when they delete it, who they are allowed to pass it to and how they use that information. But the first step is knowing what you've got. So I mean, I rem- Sorry, Dan, you go first.
0: No. Oh, it's very kind of I remember um, I was in quite a large public organisation when, when we started to look at things like data retention and stuff like that. I can't even remember how long ago it was. And everybody that was involved in the management of the organisation fought not to be the chief information officer. Yeah. It was, uh, honestly, it was the last person in the room were the ones that got that job because yep. it was a poison chalice. Absolutely. Because we yeah. didn't know what we had, where it was stored, how it was stored, who stored it, what personal information was on it. It was a complete minefield.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And So I've had a similar experience working yeah. in a big organisation where nobody wanted to be the owner of customer data. So I, I understand completely. I mean, we, we are making the information searchable and reportable and actually with our product we have built machine learning into the product so we can also do things you know like once we've found um, a data type we can look for where there is more like that data type across your infrastructure so you can essentially get a view of where information is in the right place because that you do need to probably most organizations would need to hold some personal data so of course you need to hold employee data you just want to be sure that it's in the right place and it's being secured and the right people have access
0: to it because because one of the problems we saw was that we had all this data but it was across a multitude of different databases Mm -hmm. and obviously there was this huge push to trying to get it all onto SharePoint and everything was stored in one place therefore it was searchable so what what's your advice about that multi-database would your would your product allow that still to work across that absolutely yes
5: so um we we work across hundreds of different document formats um we can build connectors into so some of our clients actually want us to work on their structured data as well as their unstructured data so we're working to build connectors um to look at structured data as well um but obviously there are some very common um data stores like sharepoint that you've already mentioned um or even even just file shares Um, a lot of organizations have a lot of information on file shares. Um, And and obviously at the moment with 365, Office 365, huge numbers of organizations are moving things online. Um, So we are seeing, um, it's more confusing for the users to know where to put the information and where they're supposed to put it in order to share it. And some organizations, probably smaller organizations, We'll use things like Dropbox or Box or other, you know, other services are available, yeah. um, but other online services for data storage. With our product, um, you can connect. We need an IP address and user credentials. So as long as our user has the right to look at the document, we can go and look at it in any of those data stores. And then from, from one place, you can search across all of those different data stores for the types of information that you're looking for.
1: Yes, fascinating. And I mean depend. obviously it depends on the size of the organization, but how long would the process take to to scan all the, you know across all their databases?
5: yeah we we are um, a non-SQL backend we're we're using um, pretty big data stores. we we go at one to two terabytes per day. Um, with uh, some of our clients, the biggest limiter is actually their bandwidth on their network, rather than, than our product. So we can obviously ramp it up or or slow it down depending on on the organisation and what they've got available to us. So we look at one to two terabytes per day. Um, we essentially are able to operate into hundreds of terabytes. Um, most organisations that we come across are, are operating probably less than twenty terabytes, um, and and that's you know that's fine for us. That's very easily doable. Um, and we, you know, we, we have different form factors that we can deliver that in depending on the organization or indeed a cloud service if organizations are comfortable with that.
0: So how did the development take place? How long has the, the your actual product been in, in use?
5: In in its current format, has actually been around for about four years, four and a half okay. years, um, and started in aerospace and defense with uh, an organization who um, were aware that their data had been accessed but did not know what information had been gained from the outside. Right, so they okay. knew, knew what which data stores had been accessed, but um, did not know what information was contained in those data stores. So we started in, in that um, area, um, and then the product has been refined and uh, moved forward over the past few years. At the moment, as you can imagine, privacy and GDPR is a very sure. uh, big use case for us. So we are really very focused. Um, on that area right now. So for the past sort of six to twelve months, we've been quite focused on privacy um, and on looking at, you know, personally identifiable information. Um, the the founder Adrian um, Barrett, he's has been around, yeah. So it's so kind of four years really working on the same same program. Um, we've now we, we've reached eighteen people, um, predominantly engineers. Uh, obviously, some some full stack developers, some working on user interface that kind of thing. Yeah. So.
0: Um. So. Uh I've seen the demo on your website, which looks really good, so you can search by various different criteria, whether it's name, whether it's any sort of keywording or other things like that. And then that will draw out all all of the information relating to that particular phrase or anything. Is that correct? Yeah,
5: absolutely. So if you want to just search the content of a document, then you might use things like phrases um, and keywords. Um, but actually you don't have to search just, just the content of the document. You could look for um, metadata or um, anything where you are the author, for example. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't know if this is just me, but sometimes I create documents and then I can't find them mm-hmm. afterwards. Yep. Um, or if you know that you've got a particular person in your organisation who's responsible for a certain type of document, you can, you can search by author. So any of the metadata becomes searchable. You could look, for example, for any information that contains personal information. So there are some types of personal information that we just look for on the first pass through um so there are there are dozens of fields that you could use to go in and search by it doesn't have to be just looking at the uh, document body so file names and so on
1: aside from the sort of the gdpr Mm. side of it you know there must be great sort of um benefits to a company just having a good search of their data and just seeing that even for things like duplicates and stuff like that must be you know quite a good exercise for them to go through
5: absolutely yeah we have um we we work with some clients who are not keen to give the power to their individual users because actually in some ways having the the search capability um would override some of the bad housekeeping which is which is (laughs) an interesting point of view um obviously our point of view is that it's better to understand it and address it and remediate um any issues but um yeah, so deduplication, for example, we, um, we deduplicate based on content rather than just on metadata. So we're quite unique in that. Um, so as you know, if you email me a Word document and I save it, that changes the metadata or the properties of that document. Um, we would still see that very much as a duplicate. We would be able to pull that out as the same document um, so duplication, de-duplication is interesting. We we have clients with forty six percent. I think was the the highest amount of duplication that we found, which is obviously a huge opportunity to reduce your data stores, um, and therefore reduce your your risk profile really. Um, so de-duplication is a use case. At the moment, a lot of organisations are looking at moving to the cloud. Um, so there is uh, there is concern around what level of data should be put into the cloud and what data might be perhaps held more securely locally. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're able to do is to look at the content of the information, um, regardless of how it has been classified, and look at what the what the proper classification should have been so if for example if we you know if we talk about government classifications if it was supposed to be classified as secret and it's been classified as top secret um we would use machine learning and intelligent classification to actually identify that the correct classification regardless of what's been put into a header or a footer or you know somewhere else on the document body so um so the the product has a number of different use cases including you know post breach or um, transfer to cloud and of course finding personal information for GDPR.
0: Mm. So um who who are, are your biggest sector you what's your biggest sector of focus at the moment?
5: Um so at the moment actually our, our biggest sector is government um right. okay. although with GDPR we are um we we're, we're working in a number of other sectors um right the way from communications companies to law firms um and yeah I mean it, I can it's, imagine
0: in a law environment because having oh, there has been a few legal case have been involved in, and it says, right, we need every email relating to X and Trying to do that is impossible.
5: Oh, it's it's huge. Yeah. Um, but actually, if you think about uh, privacy regulation generally, um, a, a data subject has a right to a, what, what we call a subject access request. So you have a right to ask an organisation um, to tell you everything that it knows about you. Under the new regulation, um, that right still exists. But at the moment, there is a small hurdle because you have to pay a £10 fee. The fee goes... And the new regulation requires um, the the request to be met in a much more time-bound fashion. So, um, you have a right to know exactly what the information the organisation is holding about you, with no fee within 30 days, or you can expect an explanation of why it's not the information is not coming back within 30 days. And everything that we learn from from organisations is actually that's incredibly difficult to do. So, as you allude to, even just finding all of the emails. Um, about one particular topic would be really challenging actually the requirement is everything so it's not just the emails it's you know if you're an employee it's all the spreadsheets of whatever the the the, the payroll data or the offer letters or the pension data or all of that kind of information all needs to come together um, to create one report about an individual and that takes many hours and organizations are doing that at the moment but when that hurdle is removed then the number of people that will ask for that subject access request we believe will increase um, and partly because the, the the act actually gives data subjects the right to sue as well so there will be a good um motivation for yeah, individuals sure to find out what information is yeah. being held about them
0: so was the uh, freedom of information act a, a driver for what you've done as well because actually... that enables people to again it would Answer queries quite quickly.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Freedom of Information Act wasn't a driver in the early days, but the product would be really useful. Um, in that act, uh, because it's a real challenge. I think for most, I think most government organizations would admit, yeah, yeah. twenty-one day response, um, and I think it's very difficult for organizations to demonstrate that they've met the requirements fully. Um, because they don't search all of their data stores, it's that there isn't a mechanism to do that in most organisations. So um, it's absolutely an area that we that we can help with. Okay. But it wasn't one of the original drivers in
0: developing the tool. Sure. So other than uh, GDPR, mm-hmm. uh, what other areas of focus over the next few years have you got?
5: So we have um, cloud migration, moving the right information to the cloud, um, and putting the appropriate level of security um, around the specific. Um, information that you've moved Um, and then we also have our you know one of our original use cases which is around a post breach so after an organization has suffered a breach typically they're not sure what information um, has been accessed by the third party so what we're able to do is to report back to them um, what they have accessed Um, And intelligent classification, which uses machine learning to help organisations understand what is the correct categorisation of each document, um, and therefore help them to understand whether or not information is being held within their retention policies, within their security policies, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, a few different use cases. Brilliant,
0: isn't it? Yeah, it's good, Dan, isn't it? You could do some of that, tidying up your files. (laughs) Because I know how he works. He's got no version control. No, he's got documents yeah. filed yeah. anywhere.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't use a desktop. I like that. To keep that tidy. And just, you, just
0: nothing on the desktop. Just
1: loads of stuff in different files. files. Yeah, Any no file. Way. Yeah, you anything know, will do. Yeah. yeah, just dump it in
5: there. Uh, you, you are much more typical than uh, than than, <laughs> than we somebody. Think. I yeah, think he's yeah, odd. Actually, no, he I is. think he's quite
0: <laughs> odd.
1: <laughs> I like that. I like typical. <laughs> <laughs> t- a lot of people say that to me.
0: Typical. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah but
1: for
5: an organisation, if you multiply that out by the number of users who all have their own habits about how they deal with their own information, um and who will all have their own little you know the uh, c- reports that they've created and stored if they leave the organization how is anybody supposed to know what's there and where they've stored it and yeah, no. w- what do you delete what do you not delete so it's a big challenge exactly. um
0: it's great to talk to you just, thank you just to remind us where we can get further information from
5: it's our website that you mentioned earlier is the best place which is exonar.com which is e x o n a r. Dot com.
0: And that's a, I like the uh, video actually, it was a yeah. really good explaining. So, yeah, good. for a simple um, radio presenters like Dan and I, it was quite useful, wasn't it? It was required. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Dan.
1: You, thank you. So, um, Andy um, from Armour Communications. Um, yeah, hi. You know, um, perhaps you could sort of just describe a little bit about what you do at um, Armour Communications.
2: Okay, so probably the best summary is to say we're a government-certified WhatsApp um, because everybody understands basically what WhatsApp does. Yeah, um, there's plenty of applications out there for your mobiles that try to encrypt your data in some way, you know, encrypt your phone calls and things. Um, where we differentiate ourselves is that we actually go through government certifications, so that. Uh, Appropriate agencies, government, um, you know NHS people like that can trust the the product that they're getting from us. They know where the data is being held and stuff like that.
0: So it's a, a communication. It's a secure communication tool, effectively.
2: Yeah, I mean the the apps available uh, on the standard app stores, um, but you do need to buy into a service. Um, it's not so much intended for the man on the street. It's more for big government departments, um, you know, MOD, emergency services, but also is just as applicable to enterprise, finance and places like that. Anywhere where you need to, um, you know, work as a large group, but protect your communications.
0: Because communication in those sort of organisations, and, um, you know, there's a few of us around the table that come from ex-public service uh, backgrounds, know that trying to get to the right person in the right way or form working groups or project groups and actually share information can be very, very difficult. I mean, does that overcome some of that difficulty as well?
2: Yeah, so I I guess one of the main problems that uh, we try to address is the fact that in the past, if you wanted to have an encrypted solution, um, firstly, if it was at the secret level, then it was a big box you had to carry around, it was very cumbersome and so on. Um, And, you know, everybody has now recognized the fact that uh, everybody from the minister down wants to work with mobiles. You know, they they have no interest in carrying these super secure things around unless they really work in the very, very sort of secret areas. Um, So we needed to have an app that was very easy to use, very easy to deploy, um, but at the same time protected your voice, your video, um, messaging, rich messaging. So you can then send files around and stuff like that. And how, how do you go around providing that sort of level of um, security? Um, so there's, one of the key parts about the system is um, how you control the keys that manage the system. Um, and that's basically done through uh, servers. And what we offer is both a, a sort of cloud service where we run the, the systems, um, but customers can also buy their own what we call on-premises systems. So basically, we give them the servers, uh, they download the apps and they run everything themselves so they know all of their security is controlled within their own environment. Uh, so there's no sort of phone home to armor or anything like that. It's it's totally totally down to them to run it.
0: So what's the, some of the uh, applications you see within the emergency services? What sort of uh, things are you selling into that environment?
2: So um, one of the key reasons for sort of following standards that we have rather than think up some clever proprietary system Um, is because uh, Etsy and 3GPP, who define all the standards for things like push-to-talk and mobile services, um, have been going through a whole load of new um, releases of uh, standards over the last couple of years uh, aimed at what they call mission-critical push-to-talk and so on. Uh, It's these sort of technologies that are going to be embedded and, and form the backbone of our new emergency services network, Um, which is kind of being developed at the moment and hopefully in the next few years will start going live. Um, And so our technology is compatible with that. And the, the beauty of the technology is, as I said, um, you might have one government department with their own server system, another government department with their server system. So they all run their own systems, but uh, the technology that we use, you've only got to exchange a couple of keys between the servers, and then each department can talk to each other. Okay. So in the same way, police could talk to fire, could talk to ambulance. If MOD turn up, they can talk to them. Yeah. And it's intended to provide that total interoperability across all the services.
0: And that's voice data, video, whatever,
2: Else. yeah the the standards at the moment are mostly uh, originally focused around voice obviously sure. um, uh, we've added uh, video and data ourselves um, the standards for video and data are just evolving in places like 3 gpp so we're kind of ahead of the game there um, but obviously our, our our initial users looked at whatsapp and said we want that you know we want it to work like <laughs> yeah. that because yeah. it's also going to be incredibly easy to use otherwise people just don't use it and then no, no. then it's pointless having the system well
0: you end up sharing a piece of paper which isn't secure and you know, yeah everything and, and else
2: maybe holding it while you're going by with photographers but yeah or using yeah. whatsapp and allowing facebook to know what you're doing whatever
0: so. yeah i'd love to view a few of boris johnson's whatsapps your, <laughs> that would be uh, quite entertaining i'm sure Dan? <laughs> i think yeah it'd probably be quite funny I would, yeah, thought, it would yeah. Be, yeah there's a few ministers probably that we'd quite like to view, wouldn't we?
2: <laughs> well, I think it's not difficult if you look on Twitter. There's a certain American president who yeah, makes his presence. Yeah, that's true. Known, he so, needs you know. your
0: product. <laughs> he really needs to keep uh, some yeah, of his stuff yeah. secure, I think, don't you?
2: Oh, yes, yes. Oh. I think there's quite a number of people who don't understand, you know, how they, they really do need to be a bit more secure because most of us just assume that our phone calls are secure. But, you know, standard GSM isn't really secure. No. So, um, you know, we're, we're trying to address that that overall problem. And it it could just be something like, um, you know, a commercial guy wants to go to a foreign country. Um, in theory, your phone call is encrypted between your mobile and the base station. But after that, it's all down to the carrier. So if you're in a foreign country, a country that's known to quite like to spy it on people for yeah, yeah. commercial espionage and stuff like that, then, yeah. um, you know, you really want to protect your voice.
0: All right. Because also some of the airwave stuff, which emergency services, that is that that's not encrypted at the moment, is it?
2: Um, so the 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 tetra sort of radio systems yeah. that are used at the moment um, have some encryption. Um, the first phase of the emergency services network will have its own encryption, but they want to evolve it to Two meet more. these these proper standards. No standards. Mm.
0: So in the uh, in the medical environment, um, there's. The is it still paper or are there other, uh-huh. but I know patient records are obviously very highly it's secure. P- Many pigeons. Yeah. just
3: talking not with... that much more developed than that. Right. <laughs> so we, we were just talking with Andy outside. Actually, it's really, really interesting because there's, there's a whole range of, um, uh, WhatsApp clones, um, which, yeah. you know, either doctors have created themselves with sort of app skills or, um, other sort of tech people have, have made just using iPhones, but they're not secure at all. No. Um, the difficulty, I think, with doctors and nurses who are going to be the people who are who are using this, and at the moment, it's very much there's still the bleep system, which has been around since you know the the dawn of the NHS, really. Um, so you know, if I was to be called down to A and E uh, when I was doing my trauma and orthopedic training, I'd get a bleep on my pager, and then I answer the the phone, the nearest phone if I can find one, um, and then I I'd go down to the A and E department, right? So. If you're, if you're relaying patient information, the really difficult thing is there's no way to do that other than to sit down with a group of doctors to write on paper or to use some of these unsecure uh, WhatsApp clones or just WhatsApp itself, which sure. is, is what quite a few doctors do. Um, I think there's there's a massive sort of gap in the market for something like this. Um, I think the main difficulty, um, and James probably backed me up on this, is actually getting the the consumer and user, i.e. the doctor, to part from what they're using at the moment which might be very insecure but might be very very convenient yeah
0: just quick and easy to write a quick note or something to somebody else right yeah, yeah i there's mean de-
4: there's, defi- there's definitely a market i mean we've got a couple on 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 the accelerator as well that, that have managed to you know secure themselves to a point where the nhs is happy um and you know, the, if you look at the future, it will literally be someone gets down, gets bleeped down to A E, they just take their phone, they write a jot a few notes down, they take a photo, send it to their registrar for advice, and then they get a, a decision beam straight back. And that's yeah, that, that is the future and that is the where where we need to go. So something like that is is ideal.
0: Yeah, Andy, yes.
2: Yeah, I mean, we're we're looking at, um, you know, potential applications like uh, using it for secure video. So somebody on site, um, perhaps in a sort of military type situation, who's not a trained medic, can uh, feedback video of a, you know, wound or something similar and get a, a trained doctor elsewhere to look at it. Or perhaps even a social worker going into a home who wants to, A, record... Um, but also securely send back information, you know, like there's a bruised child or something like that. Yeah, so loads and loads of applications
0: because um, We've had a few people in talking about remote monitoring So you've got someone who's actually remote monitoring But also they're caring for or there's someone who's being remote monitored that can't care for themselves so you've got the family have access and there are massive controls around the actual patient database with huge amounts of security to people to go through to share or to access data or to pull it back off. So if you're a health visitor or whatever else, but it seems to be that that's really secure, but everything else around it isn't, uh, you know, that's, is that your experience as well? Alex?
3: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think um, there's, um, you know, as Julie was saying, there's lots and lots of data sources themselves within the sure. NHS, which are quite discreet. Um and the NHS itself is has got a tremendous amount of data, whether it's in patient records, whether it's moving over to the electronic records, which is supposed to be happening by 2020, but I'm not sure whether that's going to be the case. Um, the potential for you know using that for things like powering a machine learning algorithm to predict things or just using data analysis to optimise the workflow within a hospital is huge. Yeah. The difficulty then is that the contrast is with um, patient confidentiality data laws and things like that. And yeah. and the NHS really is getting a, a two-pronged attack, which is startups and people like us are basically giving them a nightmare saying, just, you know, release this data anonymized and, and we want to build something awesome to to help you guys out. But then obviously there's there's the flip side, which is the confidentiality, which they've also got to be dealing with. And it's really, really difficult for them. And and I, I don't know personally off the top of my head how you can get around that at present. Um, we'll see what happens with sort of the data laws that are coming in next year. Um but, yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge potential, um, whether it's with the remote monitoring, whether it's in, in hospital monitoring, um, uh, around the data protection.
0: Yeah, no, it's massive. So uh, where do you think you'll be going next in terms of secure? What markets are you going to be focusing on, or is it just a broad focus? Um,
2: there's a broad range of uh, markets. Uh, it can be anything from, um, you know, secure services on trains through to, as we said, emergency services, mod government um, but also the the crypto technologies that we use are also applicable at the Internet of Things level, so that's an area that we're you know looking into at the moment, um, because let's face it, that's certainly an area that needs protection. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I'm hoping that some of our stuff will also help address um, some of the GDPR issues that um, you know Julie's company cover because frankly that is a really scary area. But at least if somebody buys, you know, one of our on-premises systems and somebody says, where's all your voice and other stuff, you can say in that server there because we own it. You know, it gives you that sort of control over where your data is. Yeah. yeah. I'm just interested. So
1: recently the government has been making some noise about for national security, having backdoors into sort of encrypted, um, into encrypted sort of messaging systems and stuff like that. Where, where do you think, you know, it, it can actually go?
2: so um, if you use the right technologies then you know there are ways to enable that so um, our our system has a mechanism to allow that because if somebody like a carrier a bt or vodafone or somebody like that wants to offer our system as a service they have to be able to provide that uh, that capability um, by law so you know it's one of those things where um, you know we we've got a system that's very carefully defined so designed so that if we have to open up that sort of thing then we can Mm -hmm. but if the customer owns their own services then it's up to them to decide whether or not they open that up to government or whoever else is asking but it could be just as you know relevant to financial regulation where people you know need to be able to record and listen back to what the traders have been saying on a day-to-day basis so it's got again it's got a very wide range of applicability
0: Yeah, no, it sounds fascinating, and and um, think you know to to have that security is is really important. So, um, unfortunately, we've sort of nearly coming to the end of the show. So, um, I I think um, what we've seen today is great about startups, Dan, about new companies coming to the market. I think that's really and that's a massive field in health, isn't it? Between you know, so uh, good luck with that. Hopefully, um, things will come through for you. you. Yeah, no, it's great, and Julie, yeah. Great to see, and your focus over the next year or two—will you be looking at growing the market?
5: Absolutely, yeah. We've we've identified a very clear market. Um, we are focused on GDPR right now because it has a very present problem for yes. organisations yeah. to address. Um, so very very focused on delivering customer success is where we are right now.
0: brilliant and Andy, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great. Yeah, thank so, you for th- being here. Good, thank you. thank you ever so much, and uh, we'll we'll speak to you soon.
2: Yeah, we will. Cheers. Thanks.